Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Thank you. Isn't that incredible? God's on the move. I love it. Even the poo stories are great. Three, goodbye, 316, be blessed. See you in a bit. Okay. Okay, so we're going to continue with our new series today. We haven't got a huge amount of time, about 25 minutes, so I'll try not to be too rushed. But this section that we're in is quite a meaty section, so I'll try and do it justice without rushing you through it. Last week we looked at what? Who remembers? Encourage me. What did I say was the one takeaway from last week? The one thing you needed to remember? Two of you. That's fantastic. <laughs> you are... T- Children of God. Do you remember? Have you remembered all week? No, you haven't, have you? You are children of God. You are dearly loved. You are adopted into God's family by no merit of your own. Purely by the grace of God, God receives you in Christ and loves you and accepts you. He takes you into his family. That was the analogy we talked about last week. So that's where we're up to. And so today we're going to look at this whole section in chapter 4, chapter 5, which I've called A New Future. So you can get your Bibles, your phones, whatever you're using, and go there if you want to with me as we begin to look at uh, chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. So Paul begins by addressing in this section, he says, to those who want to be under the law, to those who want to be under the law. Remember, the Galatian believers are being influenced by these false teachers. These false teachers are encouraging them. They need to add to the gospel, to be fully accepted by God. They need to do things, they need to perform to make themselves truly loved and truly accepted. So Paul says, if you want to be under the law, do you really understand what that means? Do you really understand what it means to live under the law? We're not talking about the law as in the law of the land here, like don't speed, pay your taxes. We're not talking about that sort of law. We're talking about God's standard for living as revealed in Scripture. And Paul says, do you really want to live up to that standard? Can you really live up to that standard? Are your works and your actions going to take you to that standard, to God's standard? And he begins to unpack that in these next sections. As we do this morning, here's my grid, okay? Four boxes. On the x-axis, we've got rely on the law, don't rely on the law. And on the y-axis, we've got obey the law and don't obey the law. So some people live here. They try to rely on the law and they try to obey the law. They're looking to the law for their salvation, for their acceptance in God. And these people are normally religious people, normally self-righteous people, people who may have been around the church a long time, around religion a long time, and they believe their performance, their standard The way they live is what gives them acceptance in God's eyes. They might be a bit insecure because in reality, they realise that they aren't actually meeting that standard. They aren't making that cut. And so even then when you speak to them, they might appear a bit smug, a bit self-righteous. In reality, underneath that, they're probably deeply insecure because they can't meet the standard that they see revealed in God. And so, that might resonate with you. You might know people like that. You might feel you are maybe a person who drifts towards that. 
Then we've got people who live up in this category. These people have got a revelation of the law, a revelation of God, but they're not living up to that revelation. So they might have been around church, they might have been around religion, around faith, and so they're aware of God's standards, God's plan for their life, but they're not living up to it. They're probably, in reality, a lot more tolerant than people in the first group, who tend to be a bit more self-righteous. So they're tolerant, but in reality, they're flooded with self-guilt because they're not living in congruency with the revelation they have. They're living outside of that. So they tend to be on the periphery of church or faith communities because they feel deeply insecure, like they're not measuring up. And so they tend to back away from people who are trying to push into God. You might resonate with that box. You might be living here. You're not relying on the law, and you're not trying to live the law. You're basically living what you could call a liberal lifestyle. You might have experienced faith again through friends, been around church. You might have rejected all of that and come up with your own standard for living. You've come up with your own way of doing life and you're living to that standard rather than a standard revealed in Scripture. You could describe it as self-salvation. It's a way of trying to reach your own goals, live up to your own standards and not look to God. So you're self-ratifying. But again... This might look progressive, but underneath it's probably not producing a lot of freedom, a lot of life. And then we've got the last box. This is the sweet spot for the gospel. This is where the freedom is. And so this box says that you understand the law, you have a revelation of the law, but you're not relying on it to produce any kind of salvation or any kind of acceptance. You are living free. And you are living free because you understand the nature of the gospel, you understand God's standard, and you're trying to live in a way that pleases God. This is where the Bible would love to see us. But many of us struggle to live in this box. We tend to find ourselves living in the other boxes. What Paul is saying is if you really understood the law and the standard of the law, you wouldn't rely on it for your salvation because none of us can meet it in our own strength. None of us can live up to God's standard. And he goes on in the next section in this chapter of Galatians to use Abraham as an illustration. The false teachers in Galatia were probably saying to the Galatian believers, you're not really children of Abraham because to be, to be a child of Abraham was to be in God's family, to be accepted by God. So they were probably saying to me, you're not a child of Abraham unless you follow all the laws that are revealed in the Old Testament. They were sowing insecurity into the Galatian believers. And so from verse 22, right to the end of that particular section in chapter 4, Paul begins to look at the story of Abraham, and particularly the story of the two children that Abraham had. And that's what we're going to look at in a second, because they represent a right way of relating to God and a wrong way of relating to God. So these false teachers were saying, it's great you believe in Jesus, we think Jesus is great, but you need to really do some stuff to achieve acceptance. If you want to be considered a child of Abraham, you've got to do the things that Abraham revealed through the law. But Paul turns the tables on them, he says this, he says, the moment you believed in Jesus, you became 
children of Abraham. You became fully accepted into God's family. In fact, we said last week, you're an heir of all the promises that God spoke into Abraham when he said, through you, all nations will be blessed. So you receive all those blessings, all that inheritance. The moment you start thinking you have to obey the law to receive those blessings, you are no longer a child of Abraham. And that's what Paul begins to unpick in this section. It's a big section, and I've put it all on the screen for you. We haven't got time to read through it all today, but I'm going to refer to it as we go through it. So Abraham had two sons, didn't he? Ishmael and Isaac. And he had these two sons through two different women. And they were both born in very different circumstances. And that's, the, that's really crucial to understand why Paul is using them to illustrate his point of how we relate to God. So if you remember the story back in Genesis 12. That's Abraham calling now, just to make sure we're listening. God had promised... Abraham would have an heir. He promised an heir to Abraham through his, son, through his wife, Sarah. But they were both very old, very, very old, heading towards their 100th birthdays. His wife, Sarah, was barren. She was childless. She'd not conceived before. And they'd lived for decades in the land without any children. But God promised an heir to Abraham through Sarah. But Sarah wasn't convinced, so she suggested to Abraham that he sleep with their maidservant, Hagar, so they could build a family through her. And Abraham agreed. And so Hagar conceived, and Ishmael was born. And you can read this whole story in Genesis 12. Fourteen years later, when Abraham was 100, he had another child, this time through his barren wife, Sarah. It says in the scripture, the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and they bore a son in their very, very old age. And that son was called Isaac. That son was called Isaac. So Paul sums up the differences in here. He says, the son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. See, Abraham knew that he had to have an heir to inherit these promises that God had spoke over him. But how could, how could his son be born by a barren woman? So he decided to take things into his own hands. Rather than rely on an extraordinary, supernatural act of God, he decided to try and get this fixed his own way. Sarah was barren, but the maidservant Hagar was young and she was fertile, so therefore, let's go this way. And by the custom of the time, it would have been perfectly legal for Abraham to take his maidservant and have an heir through her. And that's exactly what he did. But this wasn't God's plan. This wasn't God's supernatural plan that he'd spoken over Abraham. So rather than wait, Abraham decided to try and fulfill the promise through Hagar. He tried to use human attainment to achieve what God was going to do. And so Paul is using this story of Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac figuratively to try and explain the way that we relate to God. And he says in verse 24, these things may be taken figuratively. So in this sense, Hagar's son, Ishmael, represents salvation by works, by human attainment, by what we can do. 
And Sarah, relying on salvation in God through Isaac, represents this whole story of grace and promise. And we can all resonate with this story, can't we? Because sometimes God speaks a promise over our lives, and it's a supernatural promise, and it seemingly is very difficult how that promise is going to come to being. And then we decide we're going to try and usher that promise in ourselves. We try and do something to make that promise happen. And we end up creating Ishmael's rather than Isaac's. And we can see that throughout the church and throughout Christian ministry. God speaks a blessing and a promise and says, I'm going to do this supernaturally. And then we run around frantically trying to make that thing happen. And we birth Ishmael's when God wants to birth Isaac's. And then right in the middle of this passage, Paul begins to speak these strange verses from Isaiah 54. And these were prophetic verses that were spoken over the Jewish exiles in Babylon. And what are they doing in the middle of this passage? It says, More of the children of the desolate woman than of her who, was a husband, who has a husband. And so these words came around 1,200 years after Abraham's time, after, after Hagar, after Sarah, after Ishmael, Isaac, and about 600 years before Paul's time. These are the prophetic words spoken by Isaiah. And the Israelites were in exile. They believed their, their, their nation, their future was over. They were held captive there. They, were, they seemed weak. They seemed like they'd failed. They felt like God was punishing them. All around the nations were on the rise. But Israel was on the decline. But God says to them through the prophet, he says this to them. Now you're helpless... Now you're weak, let me show you what I can do. Let me show you what my grace can do and my supernatural power can do. I will make you numerous and great. While the other nations rely on themselves for their strength, you turn to me in your brokenness and I will make you great and I will multiply you. And this is the true story that Paul refers to. God looked down at two women. One was old and barren, and one was young and fertile. And he said, it's through the old and barren woman that I will make my promise come to pass. And through her family line, God looked down upon another woman many hundreds of years later. And that woman was a young woman. That woman was a virgin. And said, I'm now going to bring forth another son who will bring the salvation of the world. And that person was Jesus Christ. See, that the Galatians were being beaten up spiritually. They were being abused by these leaders. They were saying, you've got to do stuff. You've got to be strong. You've got to be right. You've got to be religious. You've got to do the right things to be accepted by God. But what Paul says, he turns the whole table and says, actually, no. Because God comes to the weak, the barren, the vulnerable, the broken. And he pours out his blessing upon them. See, if salvation is by works, only the fertile can be blessed. But if salvation is by grace, then everyone, the barren, the broken, the outcast, can be blessed. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from, what your standing is. If the gospel is really, really true, then you can experience God's grace poured into your life. And this is the point that Paul is bringing See, back in those days, if you were barren, you were marginalised because in the ancient world, the ability to produce children was looked upon very highly. So if you were barren and you couldn't produce children, then you were, you were marginalised, you were outcast. 
But the gospel says that doesn't matter because you will bear fruit and you will bear fruit that will last. So grace is not just for fertile Sarah's, it's for barren, sorry, fertile Hagar's, it's for barren Sarah's. If Sarah can have a future, Paul says, anyone can have a future in the gospel. It's not reliant on you. It's not reliant on what you can produce and what you can do. So Paul tells us this story because he's trying to say, in the midst of barrenness, God's grace is sufficient for you. And Sarah's story should be a huge encouragement to all of us who think we've failed, to all of us who think we've fallen short, to all of us who think we can't deliver what we think God needs. It should encourage all of us. We all see ourselves as failures to some degree. And this story encourages us that God's grace is sufficient for us. Even in modern times, single or childless women can feel marginalised because we elevate the family to a position of salvation or, or, or worth. But God says, no, my grace and gospel is sufficient for everybody. See, our life is worth more than any family to God, any career, any power, any money. None of your self-worth can be located in these things, Paul is saying has to be located in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul draws a final lesson from this story. So that, at that time, in verse 29, the son born in the ordinary way was persecuted, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And it's the same now. And Paul says those who are born into slavery, those who try and self-save, those who are religious and try and look to the law or works to save themselves, will always persecute the free person, will always persecute the one who is finding grace and life in God. It's the same now. Ishmael's will persecute Isaac's because the gospel is more threatening to religious people than non-religious people. And that's why often when God begins to move in churches, there's this reaction amongst the religious. There's a reaction because there's a religious spirit there that God wants to confront. The Ishmaels will always persecute the Isaacs. See, we saw in our grid, didn't we, that religious people are very touchy about their standing with God. They live by works, but underneath they're incredibly insecure. And when God begins to move, they get touchy, they get threatened, and they react. And their insecurity makes them hostile to the gospel. And what the gospel reveals to him is your best works are like filthy rags. Your best deeds, your best efforts are just rubbish before God. John Stott says this, The persecution of the true church is not always by the world who are strangers, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church. The establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. So we have to be really be careful that as we push on in God, we don't let a spirit of religion take root in us because our, our salvation can never come through works, can never come through performance. Jesus was most bitterly opposed by the religious establishment because of the life that he brought in the gospel. Okay, I want to push on quickly into this next section. 
which we're going to call gospel freedom. Again, it's on the screens, Galatians 5, 1 to 6. So Paul's been repeatedly telling the Galatians, don't fear condemnation. Don't fear that you're not measuring up because Jesus loves you and has received you. The Father accepts you. Not because you keep the law, but because Christ's righteousness has been given to you as a gift. But he's saying, don't use this freedom now to start just basically not living a godly life. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Everything about the gospel is freedom. Do you know that? Everything. Everything about the gospel is freedom over your life. Okay? That is the essence of the gospel. It's freedom. And Paul warns this freedom can be lost if we don't stand firm. Standing firm is like a military term. It's keep mixing these ideas of being alert, being strong, resisting attack and doing consistent behaviours. We must stand firm to keep our freedom. So despite the fact you've been saved by Christ, you've been set free, you can lose your freedom. And the easiest way you can lose your freedom is by being enslaved to fear. By being enslaved to fear. Paul has a full-on rant here against the people who want to look to circumcision to save them. He has a full-on rant. He says, you do this, Christ will be of no value to you at all. You're undermining everything that's been revealed to you in the gospel. Justification through the law is self-salvation and it doesn't work. That's what he's saying here. It will alienate you from Christ, he says, in these words. You can't hold on to the gospel of grace if you try and get there through works. That's the essence of this passage. And he says, neither circumcision, which represents religion and religious duties, nor uncircumcision, which represents paganism, or just the way of the world, neither of them work. Neither of them produce salvation. They have no value. So your good performance doesn't make you right with God, your bad performance doesn't make you less right with God. You're not convinced, are you? You can see you and think, I'm not convinced about this. It's true, okay? It is true. The way God looks upon you is not based upon your performance. So don't score yourself at the end of every day and say, God would have liked me more today because I did a few nice things. Or the next day, God likes me less today because I did a few less nice things. That is not how the gospel of grace works. It's just not how it works. And Paul says, you guys were were running a good race. Who cut in and ruined that? Who who called you away? Who, Who threw you into confusion? And so many things can cut in on our race with God and throw us into confusion, throw us off. And you feel the anger in Paul's words here. He's, he's, he's so frustrated that they're being taken off course by these false, false teachers. So as you walk the Christian path, there's two ditches you can fall into. There's a ditch on this side, and there's a ditch on this side. And on this side, you have a ditch called legalism. Legalism. So you can believe that you have to do certain things act certain ways to make God love you. So you live under the law and you find yourself in this ditch rather than on this road of life which God promises to you. So that's one ditch you can fall into. And on this side, there's another ditch you can fall into. And that's an old-fashioned word called licentiousness. What does that mean? It means basically you just, you just, you just, you just throw it up the wall. You just go for it. You, know, you, you use your freedom to live in an excessively worldly lifestyle. There's no restraint on you. God set you free, so therefore I'm free. I'm going to do exactly what I want. You're over here, and you fall into this ditch. 
And the Christian believers often fall into one ditch of legalism or one ditch of an excess, which is narrow, of life and freedom that God promises to all of us. So we don't use our freedom to abuse it. You don't use freedom to abuse other people. Paul says, don't take bites out of each other. Don't use your freedom to lord it over people. Don't use your freedom to attack people, to criticize people, to undermine people, to gossip about people. The analogy is literally I'm taking chunks out of each other. I always keep piranha fish. I did. I had 10 piranha fish in my bedroom in a tank. And not when I was married to Keely. That's a go. But I bought these little prawn fish when they were that big. And they look quite innocuous when they were that big because they look like any other tropical fish. Apart from they've got a slightly sadistic grin on their faces. Um, <laughs> particularly when they're in a fish tank with other fish that have no idea what they are. Anyway, so you bought, I bought these 10 piranha fish that big, 10 red piranhas, and over time they got to that big, okay? So I had 10 red piranhas, and they're quite boring. They just sit there and look at you, waiting for an opportunity. And they're not these vicious things that are portrayed in James Bond. But what they do do is they love to take pieces out of each other. They're continually watching each other, waiting for an opportunity. When one piranha fish isn't quite as diligent as another, boom, and they'll take fins off, they'll take eyes out, they'll bite the bottom of their chins off, and you get to see what their teeth really look like, which is quite scary. But they're continually looking for an opportunity to take a piece out of each other. And because of that, they've got incredibly powerful regenerative skills. They can regenerate themselves very quickly, apart from their eyes don't grow back. So I had a couple of piranhas who had only got one eye. And they were really twitchy because they now can only see on one side. <laughs> so they were living a life of you know, abject you know, twitchiness because this side, they were blindsided. So. And Paul says you can't live like piranhas. You can't live like people who are looking to use your freedom to take bites out of each other. You use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. That's how you stay on this right path. Not by succumbing to the law, not by succumbing to an excessively worldly lifestyle, but by serving each other in love. That's the, that's the path that God keeps you on as you live out this gospel of life. So he says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. It, the entire law is summed up in this command. This is the real nature of the law, not religious observance, but to live from your freedom to serve one another. So as believers, we're free from the law. We don't have to get merit from God by behaving a certain way. But equally, we're free from the law to bring pleasure to God. The way you live your life can now bring pleasure to God, pleasure to his heart, by just the choices you're making from a position of freedom, not from a position of legalism. The gospel's got two important freedoms I want you to try and grasp today. The first is a freedom in your conscience. You can be free from the guilt of any performance. You don't need to live under the, free, under the guilt of believing you're not measuring up. The gospel gives you freedom in your conscience. So you can live in that freedom in your heads. And the second freedom is this motivational freedom. You're now free to choose to do the right thing. You're free to make the right choices. God has empowered you by his gospel to set you free to make right choices. Not because you have to, not because you need to do them to make God love you, but because you choose to do them to bring pleasure to God's heart. You're a secure child of God. Your heavenly Father loves you 
and it brings pleasure to him when you choose to do things the family way, when you choose to do things that represent him on the earth. And this is the hope and this is the future that God has called you into. Freedom in Christ. It's not just a course. It's a reality. This is the whole section that Paul's talking about. You are called to live with freedom in Christ. Because the gospel has set you free, not through any merit. Now, God loves you so much today. You could have had the worst week. You could have done the dumbest things. But God loves you so much today because of his son, Jesus. So let's just stand together for a moment. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite the parents to go and collect the children. Thank you. I've had to go through that fairly quick today, guys. So if you want to go back and study that in your own leisure, that will bring warmth to my heart. (laughs) It's true, I don't just want to spoon-feed you the Scriptures. You need to really get into the Bible, understand the truth that's there, the power that's there for transforming your life. Because what you believe affects the way you live, affects the choices that you make. And the devil would love you to live insecure, not believing that you're measuring up. Whereas God wants you to live from the place of freedom. So Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the, the way Paul wrestled with this and the way he conveyed it to that church in Galatia hundreds of years ago. And we feel the passion in his words, God. And I pray the truth, God, would penetrate our hearts today. That nothing we can do can add to your gospel. Nothing we can do, but you have made us free in Christ. And I pray that freedom would kind of blossom and grow this week in our hearts. And as we come, we're faced with choices, God, I pray that we'd make choices out of that freedom, not out of religious guilt. God, help us to make choices that bring pleasure to you today and this week. I'm going to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, God, have a sit down for a moment. I think the kids are on their way back in, so we're just going to... Welcome them back in. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more, or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.